If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn them to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to take a, a break from Genesis for about four to six weeks. And we're going to move into the spiritual progress campaign. <clears throat> I've been doing this for two years now. This is the third year, actually that we've been doing a spiritual progress campaign. I've called it a spiritual growth campaign in the past, but I'm calling it a spiritual progress campaign this year. Because there's a lot of Christians today who want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Do you want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord? I want you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And I pray that for you. And there are many Christians who want to grow in holiness. And they want deeper fellowship with God. And so we, we talk about biblical words like holiness, maturity, sanctification. Um, but what do those words really mean when you come right down to it? What experiences of life are going to be improved upon when you make spiritual progress or when you grow? What states of my being will be improved upon when I grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord? What is the goal, or what are the goals of spiritual progress, and how do I actually do it? That's what this series is about. And what I'm talking about here is deeper discipleship. Um, not just being people who go to church and, and live kind of... Uh, Thin Christian lives, but deep-rooted discipleships. Uh, discipleship is what I'm talking about. Now, when I say spiritual progress, I mean definitively by the word spiritual, not some vague mystical experience, but I mean the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit in your life, working within your own spirit to conform you to the image of Christ. That is what I mean by spiritual. By progress, I'm, I'm referring to the goal that your efforts are actually moving towards. So this is spiritual progress. It is the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit in your life, working on your own spirit to progress you or to conform you to the image of Christ so that God would be glorified. That's spiritual progress. The first two weeks of this campaign, this series, I'm going to talk to you about goals of spiritual progress because when we talk about growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord, many people have different ideas, and I want to clarify ideas about spiritual progress. Then in the next two to four weeks after that, we will talk about how exactly you can do it. I believe that it's possible for everyone to make spiritual progress, and I think there are definite and identifiable ways of doing that. And I want to tell you exactly how you can do it. But first, I would like to talk about ultimate things so we can get our bearings straight. So with that, would you read with me Romans 12, Verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul 
says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There was a song that we used to sing um, maybe about 15 years ago. And the refrain of this song was, we fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. And the saints are just the sinners who fall down and get back up. And the saints are just the sinners who fall down and get back up. Don't answer this question, but I want you to think about it. Because I don't want to spend the whole sermon telling you you're wrong. <laughs> is that really what a saint is called to be? Nope. Thank you. <laughs> is, that, is that really what a saint is? Just a sinner who falls down and gets back up? Is that what you're called to in the Christian life? To fumble your way, unceasingly failing in the Christian life until God finally takes you home? Certainly, there is truth to the fact that we are going to fall down. But I used to like that song, and now I think it presents such a feeble vision of the Christian life. It sets the, Christian, the bar of the Christian life so low. It sets the bar of the Christian life right at our fallen nature, rather than a regenerate state. And it, it, it plays into the assumption today that the height of Christian piety is embracing your brokenness, embracing how sinful you are and kind of owning that and grieving over it. Of course we are sinners. I want to affirm that loudly. I am a sinner. But what am I called to be? That's the question I have. Yes, we're sinners. But what are we called to be as God's children? How short does that refrain fall from the words of Christ, who called his disciples the light of the world and tells us to shine? So that others might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. How far does it fall from Christ's words? Um, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How, how short does it fall from what the reformers had in mind? When the Westminster Divines penned the first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which asks, What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In the passage I just read to you, Romans 12, the Apostle Paul moves from the sacrifice of Christ to the sacrifice of ourselves as Christians. 
He moves from possessing the Holy Spirit to walking in the Holy Spirit. He moves from receiving grace to being empowered by grace. He goes from living your life unworthily to living your life as a sacrifice so that you might glorify God. Today, if I can get one thing into you firmly and into my heart firmly, it would be that you are not called as God's child to simply embrace and grieve your brokenness. You are called, Christian, to live your whole life as a living sacrifice before God. You are called to glorify God. That's the point of your life. I'm going to ask, answer three questions today. What is the call on a Christian's life exactly? How high does Scripture set the bar on the Christian's life? And what aspects of our lives do these things involve? First of all, what is the call of the Christian life? The passage I just read, read you gives you the answer. Now, if you look at Romans 12... Verse 1, he says, I appeal to you on a basis. I appeal to you, therefore, what is the basis? It's the mercies of God. So the appeal, the urge that Paul, that Paul gives to Christians is based on what they could not do by themselves because they are sinners. However, you have received the mercies of God through Jesus Christ. These mercies are as follows. Number one, in Romans 1 through 3, you deserve the wrath of God. And you are without hope and without God in the world. However, number two, and chapters 4 through 5 of Romans, lay out that now through faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. Peace with God. You have been reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through faith. Then, in chapters 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul tells you what happens to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, you are united to Christ in a real metaphysical way. You are united with Christ in the heavens. And you are enabled to do through the Holy Spirit, what you could not do without him. Chapters 7 through 8. So, you're a sinner, but through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been reconciled to him, and not just reconciled to him in some manner of transaction. You've been reconciled to him by being united to the life of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Which is why the great Puritan writer, Henry Scogel, called Christianity as nothing less than the life of God in the soul of man. That is what a Christian is. So you're more than just forgiven. You are brought into cooperation with the purposes of God as a Christian. To, and what is the purpose of God for his creation? Worship. 
Jesus said, if these didn't worship me, then even the rocks themselves would cry out. The whole purpose of creation is worship, and it's the reason that I was created and that you were created in his image to reflect who he is and thus give glory and honor and worship to his name. It's on the basis of that reality, those mercies of God, that you are called to live a self-denying, holy, and upright life. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, first of all. So when we talk about spiritual progress, don't over-spiritualize spirituality. It involves your bodies, what you say with your tongue, what you expose your eyes to, what you rush to do with your hands and your feet, what you think about with your mind, what you do with your hands. It involves your body as well, not just some private devotional existence kind of one step removed from reality. It's this life. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable. You know God still requires sacrifices in the, in the New Testament? In the Old Testament, he required bulls and goats, but now he requires you and me to be on the altar of worship our entire life. Holy and acceptable to God. Holiness means that you are separated from the world and consecrated to God taken from the world and put into the realm of the divine order. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this is most accurate, accurately translated, your reasonable service. So you know, people and even Christians will talk about themse themselves in terms of this being their life. And they you know, I've got to do what I what I want to do because it's my life. Right? A Christian has no right to talk about himself or herself that way. It is not your life. You were bought with a price, Paul says in First Corinthians. So glorify God in your bodies. You are not your own. You belong to God. So, Paul here, and throughout Romans, allows us to realize that you're not just saved from something. You're saved to something. You're not just saved from sin, all that is very true. And you're not just forgiven, although that's very true. You are saved to and enabled to a God-glorifying life through being united to Christ and indwelt by the Spirit. I've told you this before, but one writer called what much of evangelicals consider today as saying a prayer and getting saved as he called that vampire Christianity. A vampire just wants a little bit of someone's blood and doesn't want to have anything to do with them afterwards. And too often, the Christian faith is posed as that. 
just getting a little bit of Christ's blood, being secure, and then going off and doing it at whatever you want to, because as a matter of fact, after all, you've said a prayer. So you've got some of Christ's blood. That is called vampire Christianity, and it's not what you're called to as a Christian. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. So you are called to not live for yourself anymore as a Christian, but for him. So the height of Christian piety, brother and sister, is not to embrace your brokenness. It is to glorify God with your life. That's the height of Christian existence. That's what you're called to. So you're called to glorify God. How high does Scripture set the bar on this? So we're called to glorify God, but how we are sinners. How high is the bar for sinners? Well, I think preachers set the bar too low today. And I want you to know I I I do not say these things out of pride because I am a I am a sinner. But I don't want to be a sinner. Um, and I say this out from out of a heart, what I hope is a genuine heart, for myself and for you and for the church at large, to live a life so that when other people see us, they would glorify God. If all we do is present the Christian life as fumbling around, bumbling our way through sin, never making any progress, then don't be surprised that when the world looks at the church, it doesn't glorify God. Jesus called us to shine so that others might see our good works and glorify God. So, how high does Scripture set the bar? Preachers set the bar too low. And we don't have enough men calling the church to holiness today and preaching unction and zeal for the Lord. We live in a, a very, it's a very therapeutic age which just wants to see you where you are and say, tut, tut now, that's, you're, you're good the way you are. You, you know, look in the mirror you are you great go out and roar like a lion you know you are it's it's and, and christians have adopted this kind of mentality in preaching today and in the church and it is so contrary to what i read in scripture honestly i was watching a video of a young girl who i know being baptized at a church in our local area and the preacher said in front of everyone, before he baptized this young girl, he said, now I wanted to iterate something very important before I baptize this young lady. And he got everyone's attention on this. He said, the thing that I talked to this little girl about in the other room is he said, 
Um, as I told her, no matter how much you want to love God, you will fail. And no, matter, and no matter how close you want to get to God, you will fail. And no matter how much you fail, much you fail God will never love you any less. And this sentimental smile lit up his eyes and everyone piously, oh, yes, failure is, is acceptable. And I, I think, I, I, it is funny, but I'm, not, I, I'm frustrated at that kind of thing. Um, of course we will fail. Of course you're going to fail. And when you do, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteousness, who is righteous one, who is able to forgive you of your sin. And he will do so. And he is faithful to do so. Amen? Of course you're going to fail. You don't have to tell people that. So I suggest, rather than forecasting a person's perpetual failure at their baptism, look that person straight in the eye and call them to something. Look them straight in the eye and say, Son and, or daughter of God, you will be buried with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life. How about what Peter says in 2 Peter 1? Child of God, His divine power has given you all you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called you to his own glory and excellence. How about that? That would be much more edifying for a young lady, rather than prophesying failure. Now, Scripture gives us a vision of power. It gives us a vision of of God's glory and excellence to strive for. Don't just tell her about failure. Tell her about a God who is able to keep her from stumbling and to present her faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Tell her about the only wise God who worked on your behalf through Jesus Christ our Lord to him be glory forever and ever, and dominion and power. Tell her about the greatness of God's power at work in you, to bring you to in confirmation to the image of his Son. Tell her about the good things that God has called her to. Don't call her to snuggle up with her sin and just live with it. We set the bar too low in the Christian life. So, where precisely does Scripture set the bar? Well, God told Israel, You must be holy, for I am holy. What's the bar he told that he set for Israel? Himself. He didn't set the bar as low as their shabby selves. He set the bar to himself. 
What did Christ tell his disciples at the Sermon on the Mount? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. Now he knows we're sinners, but he doesn't call us to be sinners. And he doesn't call us to live with, embrace, or just accept the fact that we are sinners. You must be perfect. That's what he calls you to. You are going to be imperfect. Let me be very clear. But that does not mean you should strive or seek for per imperfection in your life. In your life, There is a very high calling to the Christian life. Be holy as God is holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul continues on this kind of preaching in Ephesians 5 when he says be imitators of God as beloved children you see a you see a theme running throughout scripture through God in the Old Testament to God in the New Testament God the Son to the Apostle Paul the bar of the Christian life is set at the nature of God himself Peter in the verse I just read, passage I just read says that we are called to his own glory and excellence. You're called to God's excellence through the knowledge of him. Holiness as he is holy. Perfection as he is perfect. Forgiveness as he forgives. And this is just not a matter of you have to do this. I gotta be holy now. I gotta glorify God i got to strive for perfection. No, brother and sister. You get to be holy. You get to repent. You get to turn from old, wicked, silly, purposeless, dying ways and move towards a God who is able to keep you from stumbling and move towards a God who calls you to his own glory and excellence. You get to repent. You get to be holy through the power at work in Him. Which He's given you. Yes, yes, the Bible does talk about the fact that you will fail. Again, I feel like I need to qualify myself because anytime someone preaches about holiness, they're going to be called somebody who preaches work salvation because we have so misunderstood the nature of saving grace um, I forget, where was I um, grace um, oh oh yes so the, the, the New Testament the New Testament does say we're going to fail but then, I think the author of Hebrews typifies what you do. You're going to fall. But the author of Hebrews says, Now when you fall, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the path for your feet, so that what is, put out, what is lame might not be put out of joint. So in other words, get up, dust yourself off, calm yourself down, 
and continue forward in the high calling. Don't be demoralized. Repent towards God. Ask for forgiveness from others and move forward for God's glory. Now, some of you and even some people who hear this message will be uncomfortable with what I'm saying. As if I've somehow missed the heart of the gospel of grace. And I want to be very clear, and I've been qualifying myself this whole sermon, that this is not about earning God's favor. This is about living by God's grace. Please understand that. You are enabled by God's grace to do what you could not do without him. So this sermon is not for the world. This sermon is only for regenerate Christians who know the Lord and have his power residing in them. They can't do this. But you can. And it can be a life in as much as it reflects God can call other men to a different quality of existence through faith in Jesus Christ. And not just quality of existence, the eternal life that he calls us to. It could be the very life you live that preaches the gospel. We will unpack that. This is not moralism. This is about glorifying God, saying there is something peculiar and different about this man or this woman. What is that? Um, we play basketball with, with some unbelievers, me, some, me and my, some of my friends, and we were paid a great compliment that um, one, of the, one of the guys said, you know, my girlfriend can tell when I've been around you guys. He says, you guys are different, you know, and he's, he's, you know, he, he surfaces in the world, but he, he, she can tell when he has been around Christians. I think that, meaning my, meaning no, I'm not, listen, I'm not someone great. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are, but I think that is such a great testimony to the different quality of life a Christian has. And there's something attractive about that to the world. And that man, young man is, is slowly being open to the gospel as we explain it to him and explain Jesus Christ and buy him Bibles and things like that. Um, okay. So, you're enabled by grace to do what you could not do. As I've said before, the great Dallas Willard quote, um, he explains that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is an attitude. Earning is an action. And those two things are different. And I think many people have mixed them up into one. In Titus 2, 11 and 12, you see the twofold nature of grace. Grace does two things. It saves you from your sin and it trains you to be godly. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That's the first thing. It has appeared and it brings salvation for all people. 
Number two, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see how grace does two things in that passage. It saves you from your sin, and then it trains you. It's a tutor. It trains you, which is why you don't need the law anymore. Because God's grace takes concrete form in your union with Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. So uh, I want you to not, don't think of grace as like a rug that covers over your sin. Think of grace like fuel that is required for an engine to start and run. It's not like a rug, it's like fuel. Without it, you couldn't get started, nor could you run. But with it, you can not only start the engine, but you can run the engine. That's grace. And a Christian runs on grace. Another great um, Willardism is, um, he said, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But if we do nothing, it will be apart from Christ. Um, all right. So the grace of God fuels our life, and therefore by his power we are called to live for him. Now, I want you to know I have a lot to learn. I have much maturing to do as a Christian. I am very, I am an imperfect man, both in my actions and deeds, and thoughts and deeds still. But I'm not settling with that. And I don't want you to settle with that either. This is not about, this is not just a self-improvement project either. This is about the glory of God. And the subtlety here is you don't want to, by becoming a better man, human, you don't want to fall into pride on the one side, and you don't want to fall into not even trying on the other side. Um, so I am imperfect. I don't preach to you as somebody who has arrived. Please know that. But I preach to you as somebody that sees the high calling of God. And I'm pointing that. I'm pointing to that high calling. So I think, again, Ravenhill, ah, Leonard Ravenhill, um, he said, we live in a day and age where people are more concerned, more afraid of holiness than they are of sinfulness. Mm -hmm. I think that is the modern evangelical church today. We are more afraid of talking about holiness than we are of sinfulness. Why is that? Holiness will not keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Sinfulness will. So, two areas, your, two areas of your life and three parts of yourself this involves. The two areas of your life is both your public life and your private life. That's what this involves. Publicly, you should live for the reputation of his name. Especially since you spend eight hours a day at a job, yet eight hours of day living for the reputation of God's name in what you do and how you work. 
so that when men see you, they have a higher esteem for God, knowing that you're a Christian. Shine so that others might see it and give glory to God. And let them know that you're a Christian too. Personally, so that's publicly, personally, and perhaps more importantly, it's holy and acceptable before Him. Before Him. It's living your life not before the world, although you want the world to see God's glory on display through His people, but ultimately it's about living the Christian life before God. Holy and acceptable before Him. The psalmist says in Psalm 19.14, he prays, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, Paul says. Don't forget, God is glorified by a holy life. Jesus said, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And that very shadowy scene at the beginning of Job, God points at Job and he says to Satan, Have you considered my servant, Job, how faithful and upright he is? That glorifies God. He doesn't say, Have you considered my servant, Job, how often he falls down and gets back up? How faithful and upright he is. Publicly and personally, you're called to glorify God. This involves three parts of who you are. It involves your head. It involves your character. And it involves your fruitfulness for God's kingdom. First of all, your head or your mind or your intellect this means growing in your understanding of God's truth. The author of Hebrews chastens his congregation when he writes to them and says, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. In the word of righteousness. Since he is a child. Yes we are supposed to be childlike. But we're not supposed to be childish. In our thinking. There's nothing good about ignorance. As a Christian. It left these men unskilled. And childish. In the faith. So you are called to grow. In your understanding. Of God's truth. Not embrace the peculiar assumption today that spirituality involves some kind of doctrinal detachment. As if Christianity and God's truth are two different things. That's a very odd bifurcation. So grow in God's truth. Certainly this doesn't mean being involved in useless intellectual debates about philosophical ideas but it means growing in your understanding of God's word what it teaches 
so that you can live it. This brings me to the next point. Your character, cultivate godly virtue. Now in that passage in Peter, he calls us to a life of excellence or virtue. And after he says you've been called to God's glory and excellence, he goes on to say, for this reason, since you've been called to God's glory and excellence, make every effort to add to your faith, virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to be fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you will pursue a life of excellence and virtue, godly character for the sake of his name. That brings us to the last part of the self that spiritual progress involves, and that is your, your fruitfulness, what you're doing, to the, how you're contributing to the kingdom. Now, just because I'm up here and you're sitting there does not mean I'm more fruitful for the kingdom. And just because someone's on television or more popular doesn't mean they're more fruitful for the kingdom. Please know that. Fruitfulness for the kingdom is actual, God-given results from a life that seeks to glorify God. So, you know potatoes grow underground? Some of you, and me, will have potato-like fruitfulness for the kingdom, where it grows underground. It's not in the sight of the world, but it will be precious in the eyes of the Lord. So, serve God, even like Jesus said, in secret, and your Father who sees you will reward you. And when Jesus, all the popular men, the famous men of renown, the Pharisees of Pharisees, were giving their money... And the crowd had gone off with them, I imagine. And everyone had left the temple. A small hunchback widow comes up. As everyone is emptying out of the temple. And Jesus, I imagine, points at her as she puts in two mites. And say, you see that woman? She put in more than all of them. But she did it in secret. She didn't ring the trumpets when she put in the coins she did it for the Lord and out of her poverty not out of her abundance so some of you are going to have potato like fruitfulness but when the great harvest comes and when your works are tested they will be precious and golden in the eyes of the Lord and for the kingdom your job is not to see the fruit it is to plant into water, and God will give the increase, right? Apollos planted, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. A one-word summary 
a one-word summary of what I'm talking about today, what would that one word be? Okay, I like that. A different, it certainly is a different perspective. You are not, what you're called to is different, it's higher. But I want to give a, a one-word summary that I think gets to the very heart of what we're talking about. Christ-likeness. That's my one-word summary today. A life lived for the glory of God and for the sake of his name. You know, Jesus said, I do nothing except what I see the Father doing. He imitated the Father while he was on earth as a God-man. So this is Christ-likeness, and this is part of discipleship, living for the glory of God. Last thing I want to do is just point your attention to put a point on this to Philippians 3. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Philippians 3. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this, that is the resurrection of the dead, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It sounds very different than simply falling down and getting up. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he follows that up with the phrase, let those of us who are mature think this way. You want to be mature in God? I do. So maturity is someone, a mature man or woman in Christ is somebody who presses on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Another one of Paul's prayers, he says, And since the day we heard of you in Colossians, we have not ceased to pray for you, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's knowledge. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him. There's character. Bearing fruit in every good work. There's fruitfulness. And increasing in the knowledge of God our Savior. That's my prayer for you. And that's my prayer for me. So I encourage you in the spiritual growth campaign to reflect on how you view your life, your perspective on life. Don't think of your life as just bumbling through existence. You're called to something much more joyful than that. Strive for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You get to be an imitator of God. You get to be holy as he is holy. You get to strive per for perfection. And when you fail, lift your drooping hands. 
Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight the path for your feet. And seek to glorify God with your efforts. Amen? And live for the reputation of God's name. That is the first and ultimate perspective when it comes to spiritual progress. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you right now that your